Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Bonus Episode 8, The Art of Strategy. Military Plans and Resources in the Civil War. The material for this episode represents an expansion of the strategic picture of the Civil War, the challenges faced by both Union and Confederacy, and the fundamental war goals of either party. We need to look at this in order to understand the failure of commanders like George McClellan and Henry Halleck. However, to begin with, I wanted to take a moment to discuss something fundamental about warfare. Specifically, war very easily goes out of control. Men often begin fighting wars almost lightly, and only later realize the true cost of their decisions, once it has become far, far too late to stop them. Wars feed upon themselves and make finding peace difficult, often continuing long past the time when there was any point. Most people assume that wars involve two parties fighting and that there's only one winner. Usually one side in war does win on paper, but it's very easy for both to lose. This occurs when two enemies invest so much in fighting the war that it exceeds any rational gain they could expect from it. In 1861, the Confederacy might hope to win, at least if they ignored the relative strength of their respective sections. By 1863, and certainly by 1864, the cost had grown beyond reason. Yet they could not end the fighting, because they could not accept losing anything, much less everything. Indeed, given the Union's vast superiority in manpower and production, their victory was nearly assured, if the North could accept the cost of waging the war. That was by no means a given, however. Proponents of the war would face repeated political challenges by those who did not agree that the price paid in blood made sense. But the greater problem lay in the general mass of the public. After two or three years of cruel war, even the most courageous people might grow weary. One of the most important factors in ensuring that a people does not grow despondent over the toll exacted by war is to have a good idea explaining why they should pay it. War goals are sometimes clearly stated in public, and sometimes not. However, in democracies especially, people must believe in major wars or will simply refuse to fight them. Though, even in monarchies or dictatorships, where dissent may face more repression, unpopular wars can crumble for want of public support. So what did the fighting sections in the Civil War actually ask for? Ostensibly, the sole war goal of the Union, and Abraham Lincoln personally, was to reunify the United States. However, implicitly, Lincoln had another goal, the removal of conditions which sparked the war in the first place. Now, the initial shock of secession caused overall Republican goals to shrink, at least in part. In the early days of the crisis, they might have bargained generously with the slaveholding interest to end the problem permanently. But this failed, because too many slaveholders could not accept that compromise no matter how favorable when they saw or thought they saw that secession was possible. Secession promised everything, and so they risked everything. Initially, Lincoln believed that moderate Southerners opposed secession and represented the majority. He may have been entirely right in theory, and at any rate, that belief guided his early war policy. But in practice, once the Confederacy sprang into existence, everyone within its controlled borders went along unless they categorically rejected it. 
When the political apparatus of the Confederate states went over to their new order, almost everyone followed. Even if they disagreed, no organized political following existed to support anti-Confederate activity, and newly formed ones might expect repression as we've seen occurred in East Tennessee. But we should also take a moment to point out that Lincoln, and most politicians of whatever party, also implicitly wanted to remain in politics, and, uh, alive. It may sound silly to mention, since in the end no politician of the Civil War era faced the guillotine as in the French Revolution. And yet at various times, panic settled over Washington. There were days when men in Washington believed that the Confederacy was right about to roll over and crush them in the Capitol. So too, some men in high office called for a dictatorship to win the war. Lincoln went to great lengths to avoid anything that might contribute to revolutionary fear. And, of course, maintaining the mundane processes of elections and votes helped restore faith in the Union's political authority. Almost all of the points, however, that we have discussed will change during the war, except for the original goal of reunifying the Union. Now, similarly, the Confederacy, as led by Jefferson Davis, claimed to have but one goal, to be left alone. In practice, we've seen that they went well beyond that notion very quickly. They had immediate territorial ambitions of picking up all the slave states except maybe Delaware, plus advancing their cause in the southwestern territory of New Mexico. This occurred for two reasons. First, Jefferson Davis, among others, could see that the more territory the Confederacy controlled, and the more the Confederacy succeeded in war, the better its position would be at a hypothetical post-war negotiation. But second, and more importantly, the Confederacy as it existed on paper had deep strategic weaknesses in practice. Apart from a large and disloyal free population, its ostensible borders made little sense and could provide escape routes for slaves. Virginia, for example, faced threats on three sides, while the Mississippi potentially allowed Union invasion forces to descend rapidly into the heart of the Confederacy, as, of course, really did happen. As a specific addition to the above, in practice the Confederacy understood that slaves were not loyal to their masters. Even though many slaveholders expressed shock during the war, as their own slaves slipped away, they understood the case at a distance far better than they could admit publicly. And as far as it goes, the idea of the guillotine caused a bit more worry in the sunny South. The Confederates, after all, had publicly committed treason. Many of them were now shooting at Federal troops. Although many Confederate leaders seemed not to entirely grasp the seriousness of their actions, many more undoubtedly held some fear of post-war retribution should they lose. Such were the major war goals of the Union and Confederacy at the outset anyhow. But war requires a method, a plan, and not merely an end. The prosecution of war is a difficult matter. The larger the war, and the more soldiers and geography involved in the fighting, the more it becomes dominated by strategy, or even grand strategy, over concerns like tactics. Let's very quickly explain these terms from the ground up. Tactics are the specific movements and actions used to fight and hopefully defeat an opponent in battle. For example, a common tactical decision is between attack and defense. But it goes farther in including concepts like the preferred range, organized formations, and movements chosen in the face of the foe. The tactical level concerns itself with achieving victory in a specific engagement. Now, in general, tactical concerns dominated military thinking until the modern era. Yes, there are exceptions. 
a great many of them. But for good reason, commanders from Alexander the Great to Hannibal of Carthage to Napoleon Bonaparte figured that if you could crush any enemy in the field, it didn't matter all that much what clever plans they had going on. Note, however, that while many such successful generals proved able to defeat their foes in direct battle, that didn't always achieve victory in warfare. For example, Hannibal of Carthage and Napoleon failed to deliver any lasting success, while Alexander used his keen sense of diplomacy to incorporate conquered territories, at least until his death. The next level up from that is the matter of campaigns. Campaigns are military plans and movements designed to accomplish some kind of specific objective. That could be driving off an enemy army, capturing a city or region, or accomplishing some brand of political goal. Campaigns can even exist purely to create activity and keep your opponent off guard, or too busy to create their own plans. However, campaigns are not in themselves usually intended to end a war. They exist to gain a long-term advantage that allows the military political leadership to figure out an end to the war. Note that campaigns may not involve any battles and therefore no tactics, and battles may occur even if neither army actually intended to start a fight. Sometimes battles just happen by chance, and then commanders must figure out their tactics under pressure. However, it's rare to actually be able to accomplish a campaign without fighting some battle somewhere along the way, so usually there is some kind of plan or affordance for fighting the enemy. Now above and beyond the matter of specific campaigns comes strategy, the meat of today's topic. Strategy simply means using your military to attain victory by the most effective measure possible. Nothing more or less. At a more pragmatic level, strategy is the assessment of campaign objectives that will hopefully bring victory, assigning those objectives to commanders, and giving them the resources necessary to accomplish them. That can mean prioritizing some campaigns over others, and often working very closely with political leadership to deal with the inevitable conflict of military and civil needs. War very often compels unpleasant choices. Strategy may require that one side essentially accept defeat in one area in order to put the resources to better use somewhere else entirely. Military thinkers considered the role of strategy in warfare very early. Sun Tzu, or Master Sun, more commonly expressed in English as Sun Tzu, was just one example and certainly not the first. And also some scholars doubt that he ever existed. But either way, his art of war represents one of the oldest and most complete examinations of how to win in warfare. Significantly for our discussion, he noted that attaining victory in warfare, as opposed to battlefield glory, required thinking about the problem rationally and as early as possible. There's much more to it than that, but this shows that the idea existed far back in human history. The expanding scope and scale of warfare slowly gave rise to a new, even greater concept of strategy. Grand strategy takes the fundamental ideas of strategy, or effectively and efficiently seeking victory by proper use of resources, to incorporate a total view of the military situation, encompassing diplomacy, espionage, civil politics, and economics, and using all of these to advance the overall national interest. Of course, this notion already existed in principle, but soldiers and historians alike often found it easy to forget that war can never be entirely separated from politics. It is precisely these higher layers of viewpoint that confounded so many otherwise capable men in the Civil War. Great soldiers such as Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor understood the principles by instinct, if not entirely by reason. 
but they did not have the opportunity to explain the ideas to others. So too, the education system of West Point arguably blinded most officers to these ideas, although not intentionally. The cult of Napoleon was then in its heyday, and everyone wanted to be like the dashing Corsican in achieving dramatic and immediate success. These officers forgot that his enemies finally defeated him with a ruthless, implacable strategy, and more or less entirely erased his political legacy. In the context of the Civil War, this mattered, because Lincoln's war goals didn't fit within the bounds of the battlefield. He proposed to erase the Confederacy from the map, denying its legitimacy as an ongoing state institution. In order to accomplish this, he would need to break the psychological hold the Confederacy had on its people, or at least the people who lived within its borders, given that Lincoln asserted they were still citizens even in rebellion. He originally hoped to do this with a sudden bracing shock, by capturing its capital at Richmond and then swiftly occupying Charleston. Deprived of its political and ideological centers, the Confederacy should wither. Bull Run dashed those hopes, but Lincoln still planned to do the same at a slower pace by moving forward. In fact, despite too slow reorganization, the Army of the Potomac held a huge advantage in the Virginia front in both manpower and firepower even in the late summer of 1861, and General McClellan had time to move forward. He could very possibly have advanced on Manassas, or perhaps even pushed farther south towards Fredericksburg. But that didn't happen. By necessity, Lincoln needed to show progress, but in 1861 he had very little good news to offer. This was a problem because it gave the Confederacy time to stabilize. What Lincoln did not yet suspect was just how difficult and challenging the war would become. His armies would, eventually, be forced to advance hundreds of miles deep into Confederate-held territory, sundering their transportation and communications network entirely. Although he formerly hoped to win quickly by beheading the serpent at Richmond, Lincoln soon realized from his quickly undertaken study of strategy that the Confederacy's great size gave it too much strategic depth. Militarily, it could afford to lose many border regions and keep fighting. Now, the Confederacy, as Jefferson Davis well understood, had more strategic advantages than just size. Owing to the way the Appalachians formed, the Confederacy had the inside track on transportation. They could potentially move troops back and forth between eastern and western theaters faster and more easily than the Union could. This at times saved whole armies from destruction. Now, while the Confederate rail network lacks the density of the Union one, it was good enough for the purpose. At the same time, the great territory of the Confederacy gave them many options to resist. The Confederacy engaged in guerrilla warfare opportunistically. But more importantly, its field armies could afford to retreat long distances, wearing out opponents and drawing out their supply lines before turning and fighting at a time of their choosing. At the same time, the Confederacy was a democracy, at least nominally, and democratic states cannot write off entire regions in the same way that autocracies can. A monarch might bargain away a province to a foreign power, either for peace or in exchange for some other territory or another gain. But democracies can really afford to do so politically. Jefferson Davis might be able to accept the permanent loss of slaveholding border states like Maryland, Kentucky, or Missouri, and maybe even the region of western Virginia. But he could never, for instance, accept the loss of an integral Confederate state such as Tennessee. Every corner of Tennessee had to be held, because every corner had voters and representatives. Therefore, Davis initially planned his strategy as a so-called cordon defense, placing troops all over the borders of the Confederacy, more or less. 
This strategy would fail very quickly, but Davis had little choice but to try it and return to it as the war went on. Lincoln, by contrast, had the option of massing his armies and, in essence, knocking the overstretched Confederate armies out one by one. In the end, this is more or less exactly what happened. But multiple and egregious failures of Union strategists allowed the Confederacy to retaliate and delay this piecemeal destruction until late 1864. In addition, Lincoln had horrendous trouble getting his armies to move in coordination. Until General Grant rose to take charge of military matters, various theater commanders frequently declined to cooperate. This mattered, because while the Confederacy held the inside track as mentioned above, simultaneous movements would prevent them from making any use of it. It mattered less if they could shift units, if the Union pressed them everywhere at once. Lincoln understood this, and in 1862, even issued an 1862 ordering the commanders to move as one. But they didn't. On the flip side of the Confederacy, literally, that long coastline from Virginia to Texas also proved as much a curse as a blessing for the Confederacy. While that, in addition to their rail network, gave the Confederacy an unusually large number of useful ports to ship goods to, and made the Union blockade incredibly difficult, it also proved impossible to defend. The very first Union Navy campaign seized islands and small ports offshore, and that process would continue steadily. Each such advance placed more of the Confederacy under threat, and forced more Confederate soldiers to occupy forts and posts far from the front lines in the fighting. On the other hand, the Confederacy had a similar significant strategic advantage in its cavalry service, which remained very important in this war. This disparity didn't necessarily exist on paper, but many northern boys recruited for war simply had little idea of how to ride, let alone how to fight on horseback. In contrast, the South long held an intense passion for riding and horseback sport. The Confederate service therefore had many more skilled cavalrymen at the outset of the war, many of whom brought their own choice steeds from home. But there was another difference. Confederate commanders in the field almost instinctively understood the new role of cavalry in war. Horsemen couldn't fight massed infantry, so they became the eyes and ears of Confederate armies, sometimes literally riding rings around their opponents. Massed bodies of cavalry carried out huge raids, similar to a medieval chevauchée, where they destroyed railroads and supplies in Union-occupied territory. Confederate cavalry commanders such as Jeb Stuart, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and Joseph Wheeler earned fame for their daring, and infamy for their many misdeeds. Until almost the last hour of the Confederacy, they plagued Union efforts, often defeating much larger forces sent to stop them. Large, undeveloped regions inside the Confederacy also gave hope for resistance. The lower Mississippi region, for instance, included thousands of miles of marshlands, difficult to enter but easy to defend. The Union Army found it nigh impossible to control these, which allowed the Confederacy to hold on far longer than pure military arithmetic allowed. For example, at Vicksburg, General Grant ultimately gave up after six months of failed movements through the swamps, and instead executed a complex, dangerous circling maneuver once the winter weather cleared. Yet the geographic strategy of the war arguably mattered less than the human and economic one. The Confederacy had a terrible fatal weakness. Slavery. Almost the whole economy of the Lower South and far too much of the Upper South depended upon it. President Lincoln saw this, and therefore initially guessed that he could use that 
as a lever, a threat, to force the Confederacy asunder. By 1862, it became apparent that effort had failed, and so Lincoln instead began the process of simply obliterating slavery itself. First by the thousands, and then the tens and hundreds of thousands, slaves, or rather former slaves, entered Union lines and left the peculiar institution forever. And it did not take long before those still in bondage, even deep within Confederate territory, began to push back. Many in-states, far from the front lines, could see the breakdown of the systems that controlled slave labor and enforced the system, and they took advantage. So too, in discussing slavery, many of the issues we've just discussed come into play. Union naval advances along the coast opened more opportunities for slaves to flee and added pressure on the system. Confederate cavalry played a cruel but sometimes effective role in patrolling the roads and trying to prevent the escape of slaves. Disaffected white Southerners sometimes banded together with slaves to resist the Confederate government. In general, the war caused Confederate leaders to cling ever tighter to slavery, even when that came at a cost of enthusiasm among free white citizens. Politicians in Richmond, who unsurprisingly were mostly slave owners, strongly supported the slave-holding interest over poor citizens. Although there is some complexity to it, it is by no means an exaggeration or a lie to claim that it was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. But most significantly in the context of this war, slaves and free African Americans alike understood that the Union Army would ultimately destroy slavery, even before the Union Army knew it. Given the chance, many would go on to offer the Union vital military intelligence, effective scouting, or guidance in the field, or even civilian services to free up more men for combat. And by 1863, many would take up arms as the war freed them, going forward to free others. Although not unprecedented in warfare, this represented liberation in its purest form, for it broke the Confederacy in body, mind, and soul. This is, in some ways, the purest expression of grand strategy, says well. It consumed the Confederacy, the enemy, from within, and in exchange created a new loyalist bloc fighting for the Union, fighting for freedom. So in the end, the grand strategy of the Union would ultimately come to define the war as the fight between slavery and liberty. It was not an easy road to get there. The Union meandered more than once along the way. But they did ultimately find that winning formula. This, ironically, is actually the greatest gift of General McClellan to the war effort. Not his success, but his failure. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.